Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Braden Cayley. I'm the executive director of Canada 2020, and we're thrilled. Uh, I'm certainly thrilled to be back again in my hometown of Vancouver for this great discussion today. I think we can say with confidence that we're feeling the acute impact of geopolitical and economic shifts around the world. We also know that our communities here and across Canada are feeling rising anxiety about the future, whether that's on climate, to conflict, or housing and affordability. And it's certainly the case that young people growing up now are facing a very different world than many of us did growing up uh, here or in other parts of Canada. So what can we do to ensure that no one is left behind as we face these challenges? That's, of course, the crux about what we're here today to discuss. So I'm really honored to introduce our speakers now. They really need not much introduction, but I'd like you to join me in welcoming to the stage, fresh from a win in uh, the fall election in Vancouver and a big state of the city address just two weeks ago. Please give it up for the mayor of Vancouver, Ken Sim. And a true leader in how business can make dollars and good sense for the communities they serve, the president and CEO of Van City, Christine Bergeron. Next, of course, Canada 2020's advisory board chair, the former governor of the Bank of Canada and the Bank of England and United Nations Special Envoy for Climate Action and Finance, that's Mark Carney. And to lead today's conversation, the executive chair of Canada 2020 and my good friend, Anna Ganey. Thank you. And before we hear from our panel today, we've got a little bit of table setting and we'll turn it over to Mark for that. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Braden. Okay, thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Braden. Thank you all for making the time. Um, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. This is, I, I serve in this role um, as uh, chair uh, of the Advisory Council of Canada 2020. Uh, the reason I'm excited about it is it's a great organization, but it's for conversations like this and what they lead to. Um, it's, uh, you know, if I can bring something to these conversations, it's a bit of a global perspective uh, due to a series of accidents of history of that, you know, uh, time at the Bank of England and uh, being involved in uh, some of the events. Um, but really, it's about translating uh, what's going on in the world into what we can do here uh, in the Lower Mainland uh, to make people's lives better. Um, and, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I was going uh, to a meeting um, uh, on climate, guess, guess what, um, and, and going into Oxford. And I used to spend some time there. And every time I go into uh, Oxford um, uh, by road, I look for uh, a landmark and uh, not necessarily the dreaming spires of, uh, of the city, but as you're coming in, if you look down uh, the right sort of nondescript uh, street of row houses, there's one house uh, where there is a giant great white shark literally um, coming through the roof uh, of the house. Um, and about 40 years ago, um, the owner of that house who just passed away um, constructed this uh, after the Chernobyl um, uh, nuclear accident and uh, because of the anxiety and impotence that he felt of these events from far away coming uh, to the UK. And if you were in the UK in the mid-80s, um, you'd know that that actually there was fallout uh, as far as the UK and there was concern. And the reason um, I bring that up is what has been happening, um, including, you know, to people here in Vancouver, across Canada, around the world, is a series of events um, from far away that have uh, washed up on our shores um, and had real impact. So you think about um, the, the global financial crisis. I still wake up and think about that um, uh, at, at night um, uh, and the knock-on effects. We weathered that well. 
but obviously a crisis in health with COVID where we had to come together to get through that. We're still living with uh, very much the aftermath of that. It's part of what's driving the economic situation at present. Um, geopolitical crisis with Russia's uh, illegal invasion of, uh, of Ukraine, knock-on impact on the energy uh, and energy crisis coming from that, um, driving a cost of living uh, challenges um, for Canadians, um, and of course the ongoing uh, climate crisis. Um, I think that all of those events um, are reinforcing what is, and we are living through, a sort of hinge moment in history. Um, my career, for most of my career, um, which started in the late 80s, it was a long period of economic integration, uh, openness, efficiency, convergence of policy, um, and which brought great prosperity globally. Um, and prosperity uh, to uh, Vancouver uh, and, uh, by extension, to Canada. Um, not without challenges, but uh, that was the broad drift. That begins to change with that first crisis, the financial crisis. It starts to slow and is being recast as we, as we speak. We have agency in that. We can influence it as Canadians, as, as business leaders, leaders in the community, uh, but we need to recognize it. So it's a world where... We're going from globalization and integration towards fragmentation or at a minimum a rewiring of uh, the global economy. Um, there is a weaponization of economic integration. We see that with increasing frequency. That means different trading relationships um, uh, in trade, in tech, in data, uh, and in capital, uh, particularly into Asia. Again, we can influence this, but we need to be wide open or eyes wide open on it and help to shape it. Um, this shift from an insecure and reliable energy system to a sustainable and reliable energy system and a broader sense of a greater prioritization of resiliency. And of course, resiliency starts at home, starts on the level. Um, so last comments within this broad, and this is what we're going to discuss, this broader shape of uh, shocks and uh, pressures, higher inflation, higher interest rates, um, the anxieties uh, that people feel as a consequence. Uh, we, meet, we need to make some tough decisions. Um, governments need to make tough decisions about using scarce tax dollars uh, as wisely as possible, uh, and particularly about harnessing the innovation, the energy of the private sector. And I know that's a priority uh, of the mayor uh, and the city council. And uh, um, with that, what I would like to, well, what I will do, um, I'd like to just keep talking, but I won't keep talking. No, I'm going to stop. I'm going to hand it hand to Anna, uh, and we'll have uh, the conversation. So thank you very much. Thanks, Mark. Great to be here. It's a pleasure to see this uh, this this full room, a full house, and to be on stage with the three of you. It's um, a real treat for me, leaving many children and a very busy life behind in Montreal. So happy to be here with all of you. Mark, you've sort of set the stage uh, with some of the, these big shocks or the, and the insecurities or the uncertainties that are coming from the, the global space. So, you know, Ken, let me start with you and ask you about your sense of the economic picture here right now. You've just given your state of the city address. Uh, how do you what are you hearing from from folks in Vancouver and, and what economic opportunities do you see in the year ahead? Yeah, you know, what? I, I truly believe that there's a renewed sense of optimism. Um, you know, you can just feel it on the street. Uh, look, we, we do have challenges. People talk about, you know, interest rates going up and, you know, it's hard to get a permit and, um, 
at the same time, people are starting to feel really positive. And I think it's a really exciting time to be in Vancouver. And you see a lot of local businesses that are actually leaving the world. Um, yeah, actually today, do a little fashion show here. I might be a little underdressed here, but everything I'm wearing is from Vancouver. Like we have Kitten Ace, Lululemon, Dura Jeans. Uh, my underwear is Lululemon, sorry, I have to say that. You know, um, and we have the Vessi shoes on here. And th that's just, you know, one sign, like one industry, the, the garment industry that is just taking off. And then you have other industries like, you know, Mark mentioned, uh, we're the number two um, place in the world for augmented reality and virtual reality. And no one even knows about this. We're doing amazing things in the blockchain and uh, in NFTs and quantum computing. So it, it's going to be lights out here. Um, do we have challenges? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, the last thing I'll share with people is we've been here before. Uh, we're, you know, even if we go into a recession here, the reality is we've lived through these things before and that's where all the opportunity is. And even if our economy, you know, contracts by a couple of percent, how big is the global economy? About $85 trillion? I don't know, $100 trillion? The, the point is, it's huge. And let's think globally. Let's not think about what's happening around the corner. The whole world is our opportunity. And that's where I hope that Vancouver gets to, where we become leaders. We become the best place on the planet to live and have businesses. So, Christine, what's your take on this then? Your perspective as a leader of a financial institution that is really known for the way it works on global challenges with a focus on local action. So the shifts that Mark has talked about, the challenges, how are you feeling that? What's your what's your sense of that? Uh, so first, thanks for having me. And I thought you might say your landmark was going to be the Van City sign across from Science World, but that's not what you said. Um, <laughs> you know, um, I think when we see what's going on, and, and you're right, we're always trying to bring it back to local uh, resilience because we know what we've seen over the last few years is what happens globally does hit home locally. And so I would say what we're seeing is a, a three-part resiliency. So there's financial resiliency, there's climate resiliency, and then I would maybe call the third bucket community resiliency, so that personal ability to be resilient. Um, and so although I, I do love the optimism, I think there is still a lot of stress out there. Um, you know, we've seen reports that look at financial resilience and over three quarters of Canadians uh, in this one report. And you can you can say, well, was the survey well done? Was it, you know, all the questions. But even if you knock it down, three quarters of Canadians said they didn't feel very financially resilient. It's a really high percentage. Um, and, and so it means that it's actually three out of four people, like many of us here don't necessarily feel financial resilient. So it's not necessarily even just about a low income, right? Um, the second piece though is on the climate resiliency front because they all come together. Um, again, we were doing some research looking at the, the effects of, uh, climate over the last couple of years. And so we know here the things that have happened from heat domes and floods, et cetera. So a third of people in British Columbia, you know, felt they were impacted by these climate events. And of those, half of them had really high financial stress and like really, really high financial stress, like acute, right? So that's again, like a lot of people um, who are feeling stressed. And when that happens, you know, we know, we know how that flows into mental health, um, into needing more community support. And so 
I think there are um, some areas there that are coming together and not everyone is okay, right? Which is okay. But it is about how do we then help bring in supports and services? How do we think about um, ensuring the financial resilience, you know, isn't acute and maybe there's more creative ways. So I think we're seeing different pieces. And I think overall, I'd say like the, the one thing, so that means wealth gaps are different. You know, you can take all of the inferences from that. But maybe my last comment is just that I think so much of what we see are aggregate numbers. And my perspective is the aggregate numbers really don't tell us the nuance of what's under that. So you can say average deposits were up. Great. But some people had nothing. Um, average things, right? And yet there's so much nuance because it's individuals and people. And so for us, what we're always challenging ourselves to think through is what's that nuance and how do we help how do we help in that nuance because it's it's not actually even across the board right it is very uneven um ken i think the piece of the puzzle on many people's minds is affordability in particular um, the housing question around affordability what are the consequences here in vancouver of the the, the housing shortage that's that's experienced and what are your what is your thinking or your plans on on how you're going to tackle that as as mayor yeah you know i i I, I like to, I'd like to change, uh, the mindset. I don't think we have necessarily just have an affordability crisis here and it is a crisis. We have an attainability crisis here. And so when you have 75 to a hundred people lining up to rent one unit, we're not talking about affordability anymore because there's going to be one person who can significantly outbid everyone. And so I like to use the, the analogy of gravity, you know, we can agree you know, or we can argue the merits of gravity, but if you jump out of a third story window, it's really going to hurt. And so the reason I share this with you, I'm kind of tired about the whole supply demand deba uh, debate. It really isn't a debate. We have a supply issue. Like we don't have enough supply. And what we have to do is we have to build more homes faster. And so at the city of Vancouver, we've identified the, the biggest constraint is our own internal per, uh, permitting process. It takes too long, you know, and people talk about, well, you know, zoning. Well, we could rezone. The By the way, we're not doing this. So everyone just do not take this as a sound bite. Yeah, yeah. We're going to rezone Stanley Park. No, but it, even if we rezone the entire city right now for 100 story towers, if it takes you six to 12 years to get a permit to build, we're wasting our time. And so what we do every single week um, at our uh, team meeting is we ask, uh, you know, how are we making progress on um, our campaign promise of 3331, which is, you know, permits uh, three days for our house, three weeks, three months, um, and one year for um, substantive projects. And so as, as we, you know, speed up the process and we let builders actually apply their trade um, just by having certainty and speed, right there we can de-risk projects we can make it easier to build so you don't have developers wondering well you know if i'm looking for a permit and it's going to take me eight years how are you going to finance that do you, you know what are the cost of raw materials what about demand for our products and so as we have more risk you actually have to build in risk premiums which increases the cost of housing so the root cause if we speed this process up a lot of great things can happen so i think it seems that rising interest rates have come with rising inflation, Mark, and this would obviously impact the housing market as well, not just in Vancouver, but across Canada. 
you know, what can we expect this year in terms of these kind of tougher trade-offs between growth and fighting inflation? Yeah, I think the first thing uh, just to acknowledge is that uh, one of the most important channels for monetary policy or interest rates to uh, to work is through the housing market. It's through uh, it's through an adjustment in the housing market, and because nationally, not just in Vancouver, but nationally, uh, we have just too few houses uh, for household formation, for demand, for reasonable expectations of Canadian. Um, uh, we need an adjustment. Uh, there and the adjustment has started, uh, but as those who are closer to it and Christine knows well, um, the adjustment is only beginning to start because fixed rate mortgages are only beginning to roll over. Um, and in my view, at least, um, and I think broad brush, the Bank of Canada would share this: is interest rates are not going back to where they were uh, during a period in the global in the old global economy that really that's why I emphasize the sort of hinge moment in history. Uh, that uh, that decisively ended um, uh, with the end of COVID. Um, so interest rates are going to be higher. They're going to be higher for longer. Um, ultimately, what that is going to bring is um, people in Vancouver, people across the country are going to really earn a real uh, wage uh, because right now um, their wages are not keeping up with inflation. Uh, so they're falling further behind. And the first thing you have to do in that situation, and it hurts a bit, um, is get inflation under control. Um, and uh, that's that's what has begun. Okay, so that's the sort of you know, basic uh, dynamic that's underway and, and there's more to, more to come. Um, that said, what we're talking about, I think, uh, for uh, the economic outlook in Canada is basically um, a year where we do not grow that much. Um, Maybe we have a mild recession, maybe we grow a little, but it's either side of a couple of quarters of relative uh, stagnation. Ken made an important point on the global economy, just the sheer scale, and I'm sure we'll come back to it, is how we, how we take full advantage of it. But look, the global economy is not, uh, in my view, which has changed over the last six months, I don't think the global economy is going to go into a recession. Uh, I think the 180 degree pivot on all policies in China it is very material. I think it ends up adding a bit of pressure on commodity prices, but but actually makes the overall inflation environment better because it unblocks all these supply chain problems uh, that uh, that we still have been experiencing in recent years. So um, it's. I know that sounds a little on the one hand. On the other hand, I think you know, if you have a challenge, and to bring it back to the local. Uh, there is a challenge with supply uh, in Vancouver. There's a national challenge. Maybe it's most acute here. Uh, facing up to it as you're doing, having a plan to address it as you're doing, working on that plan on a weekly basis as you're doing, sitting down, three, 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 one. I love it because that's exactly the way. That's how you move out of these types of situations. Last point, what's crucial in all of this, whether it's around housing locally, uh, the Canadian economy nationally, the anxiety people feel, feel, uh, the climate transition, the future of our economy, what's really important is that Canadians, citizens here, Canadians as a whole, understand what those plans are and can mark progress against those plans. And boy, I think people get behind a plan that's credible that's uh, at, and where people can see progress. Yeah. Christine, did you want to add on the affordability and the housing piece or uh, any so much has been said. I guess the only thing I would maybe add is, you know, we 
we do see it, you know, day to day. I just think there's a lot of room for creativity as well, right? In ownership models, um, obviously there's cooperative models, but even just shared ownership, there's a lot of other models that I think can be explored and really pursued more than we have. Um, and that helps with quite a few things from isolation, right? And all of that community um, grassroots level. But I just think there's a lot of room for creativity as well. Um, if we if we go more broadly to economic recovery, um, what could we, on that note of creativity, what could we radically rethink as we come out of the, the pandemic's disruptions and face these new shifts and uncertainties? Um, which would be the most important kind of tools in our toolkit to levers to pull? Is it is it regulatory or excuse me, are we talking about policy, private sector investment? You know, what what could we well, maybe I'll get you to tease out your your creativity element on that a little bit. Yeah, well, so I guess if you think of re you know recovery, um, I guess to me it's really just shifting how we think about an economy and. Um, you know, Van City, for those of you who know us, uh, we've long espoused its profit with planet and people, um, not not just one. And so I do think um, what we've seen is the economy is not really working as well as it should for as many as, of, as many of us as it could be. So perhaps not for, as you know, people here in this room, perhaps it's working decently well, but we know kind of broadly that's not the case. And so I do think that rethinking an economy that actually embeds trying to protect the earth and actually tries to think about how to make things more equitable. And so that sounds very just, well, that, you know, how are you going to do that? That's so high up there. But what we're, what we're talking about today is some of all of you know, the threads we see is that, well, if you're not doing that, you're going to see those financial implications because we're going to see more and more climate events. And when you have wealth gaps, and if you're going to have bigger wealth gaps linked then to climate, what you see is a destabilized society. Like we're seeing that elsewhere. We're not that far from it. Arguably, there's pockets here where we see that happening. So I think rethinking that is going to be really important. In terms of the levers, I mean, my answer is always like, well, you need all the levers. Uh, it's too complex. You know, a system is way too complex to think one lever could potentially do it. Um, and I wouldn't say that's on everyone. You know, everyone's got their own lever in their own business and their own roles, right? Whether it's, you know, regulatory, whether it's policies and what can you do to at least play your part? We will do everything we can, necessary but insufficient, right? Like we can't do it on our own. Um, so to me, all the levers need to happen if you're going to try to see the change. Ken? Well, you know, just building on that, um, I agree with everything you say. Um, I think from the city of Vancouver's perspective, we want to wave the flag and say, we are open for business. Um, I think half the role of a mirror, any mirror is you wave the flag, you work on the brand. And why I share that with you is, you know, I, I think of the green economy, you know, I, I think of the challenges that we have with the environment as an example, and it's, you know, arguably the number one challenge facing humans. It's also the biggest opportunity out there. Half the unicorns on the planet will be focused on green tech. And so we want to wave the flag and say, Vancouver is open for business with a focus on, you know, a bunch of different industries, inc including green tech, because I, I, I truly believe that, well, first it's great for us, but also if we really want to solve this challenge 
and with all due respect, like we've done some great things in our city. I, I do want to give a shout out to Gregor. Um, like you think of the bike lanes, absolutely amazing. And it's actually, you know, uh, it, it's had influence and an impact on the entire planet. Cause you go to London, England, you go to Paris, you go down, like bike lanes are everywhere. So, you know, like big shout out to Gregor. Um, the environment isn't a local thing. Right. And so if we attract the best companies that are applying their trade, be it in carbon capture or, you know, a 3D printing of homes that have 90% less construction waste and you can print these things in five days and we, we build a focus in our city, we can have an oversized impact on the environment and actually create jobs and have amazing businesses for people who want to stay in Vancouver. Sorry, long-winded answer. I actually get excited about that though. Well. Okay, I, I'm I'm going to compliment, try to compliment um, what was said. Uh, so instead of going to climate, as you might expect me to, and because I absolutely agree, the huge, huge opportunities. Uh, look, I think we're seeing, um, and and this is we're in the very early stages of this rewiring of global supply chains and value chains, and we should recognize just what an exceptionally good position we are in if we want to take it in Canada. Um, you know, we have, we're, we're part of NAFTA or whatever it's called these days. Um, they renamed it after when I was away, I can't remember. U.S. came first. I never liked that. So, uh, uh, but, uh, you know, we're part of NAFTA. We've got the free trade with, uh, Europe. We were part of TPP. Um, we're wired into all, we're wired into all the, and, and it's a trendy term, but the French shore, but that is real. That is real. Look, I would say that half of the conversations I have with CEOs around the world are around this issue. Obviously with the IRA as well, we see um, where we have, um, we're inside, largely inside the tent uh, for some of the most attractive um, uh, measures in the IRA. The U that, that's the US um, uh, uh, latest climate plan, which is absolutely enormous. Just to be clear, that is not hype. It is absolutely enormous. I think part of, on top of climate per se, this broader rewiring, recognizing this is something that uh, is just getting going. There's a lot to come. We have a lot of advantages as Canada. How do we maximize? How do we take advantage of those? And if there's anything getting in the way, and one thing that can get in the way in some of this is permitting. Um, so it's not just about residential permitting, it's about energy permitting. Uh, and we need to, you know, they're, they're, these windows come along um, and, and you need to jump through them, uh, and, and the window is open now. Well, I, this, we could pivot now and we had a number of questions submitted to, to from the audience in the days leading up to the event on, and a number of them came in on this question of, of climate. And so we have the shifts, we have the anxiety, we have these challenges. And at the same time, the overlay is how do we, how do we work to deal with those problems? And at the same time, align the plans with a rapid transition to net zero. So. We're juggling small crises, big crises, and at the same time, we've got to keep our eye on the, the climate um, commitments and and the, you know why it's so important. So, I don't know if maybe Christine, you know, you were the Van City was the first financial institution in Canada, I think, to sign on to the Global uh, Net Zero Banking Alliance. And going back to that um, time, like why was that so important then, and and what does it mean today still to your business and and how you're how you're approaching this this question of the transition that we have in front of us? Yeah, so we we did sign on to the Net Zero Banking Alliance, and and I would say you know we spent many many years trying our best to 
uh, be at the forefront of environmental initiatives. Uh, so, for example, we also sit with the United Nations Board for uh, to implement the principles for responsible banking. So it's sort of a broader one. And um, we also piloted doing uh, carbon accounting, you know, on our book, right, to understand our own emissions. So a lot of that type of work. And with um, with the Net Zero Alliance, I mean, at the end of the day, we always uh, join these to collaborate, right, and to learn from and to give, you know, our best advice as well. But at the end of the day, there's sort of like three things. First of all, we're small, right? And we can do everything right. Um, but the air might not be better overall, right? Um, because the second point is, you know, carbon and climate don't, there's no, there's no border. And, uh, and so that's an important piece as well. And, you know, as well for us, we're an intermediary. At the end of the day, we cannot achieve our net zero ambitions without our members um, doing the work and collaborating with them and partnering with them. And what we found through a lot of these alliances is, you know, there is a lot of, um, best practices and people doing super creative things in other parts of the world. Um, and then we're doing lots of interesting things that we share out because we need other people to do it. You know, we need larger financial institutions to do that. So we've tried lots of different programs. Uh, we, you know, there's one where we're, we're working with one developer to bring their own emissions down uh, to zero by 2035. So we're financing how they can retrofit, you know, working together. We need them. They need us, right? Win-win. Um, we've been trying to figure out for our retail members, how do we help you figure out what a retrofit even means? Everyone's interested in it, but like, where do you start, right? It's complex. It takes a long time. It'll take less time. Um, but, uh, you know, so we've been offering advice to members, you know, just a free consultation, go figure out how you can do it. Um, and there's no strings attached, right? It's, it's genuinely, what are all these other creative things that we can be doing? Um, including working with nonprofit developers and just trying to um, to do every piece we can. So we join the Alliance for the collaboration um, and we join it because we need to be, you know, we need um, broader, larger institutions around the world doing it. So maybe Marco, I'll flip to you on that. The role of the, the private sector in, in this rapid transition to net zero, how is it going and how do you see things? And I think it's important to underscore certain components like the transition being really a huge job creation opportunity as well. So there's there's so many elements, but you know, how does that yeah. sit here? I mean, in the how, how it's going, uh, I would say it's uh, going, it is actually going very well. I mean, there has been a huge shift and a mainstreaming um, in many, m many, if certainly most, um, large companies uh, focused on the transition, focused on their own operations first, then the power they bring in uh, related to that, and then how they're going to work with their suppliers and ultimately customers to get these down. Um, and a recognition that in many cases, um, what that brings is enhanced returns in the near term uh, and certainly in the longer term. Uh, related to that, um, you know, Christine, in full credit um, to Van City for uh, leading the Canadian financial sector. Uh, others followed, uh, but you need a leader uh, in order to have followers. Um, and um, but globally, uh, you know, it's forty percent of global private financial assets that are focused on how those investments and that that lending is going to be aligned with uh, the transition. 
Um, and to be absolutely clear, and this is, I think, one of the most important developments in the last 18 months, is an increasing appreciation and formalization, if I can put it that way, of this, which is a lot of this is about going to where the emissions are, getting capital to, whether it's at the local level, it's literally retrofitting somebody's home. So, you know, you can't get more local than that, than going to the home. Uh, or in the auto sector, in the steel sector, and in, in, in cement, in the building sector as a whole, um, to get those emissions down, to, to, to take a utility that has coal as well as gas and renewable generation and transition that. Um, and that the contribution to uh, competitiveness uh, and, and climate goals uh, of that type of behavior is, is enormous. Because I'll say one other thing, just to link it back to what I said earlier about location of, as, as the global economy gets rewired, in those conversations with companies as they're thinking about, do I go to Canada? Do I go to Vietnam? Do I go to Mexico? One of the first questions is, where am I going to get my power? And is it going to be clean? Um, so for us, we start with a head start, big head start here in, uh, in British Columbia. Now we need to grow the grid more, but again, to put it in orders of magnitude, um, Vietnam is building, intends to build 600 gigawatts of offshore wind, um, which is um, 24, 25 times the generation for Greater London. Um, now, again, will they do all of that? Pro maybe not, um, but that displaces their entire domestic coal generation. Um, it builds a domestic hydrogen business, and the rest is for onshoring out of China. Um, and it's, you know, again, it's those orders of magnitude and you can take those numbers and cut them in half and they're, they're enormous. Uh, and so, and again, we start, as I say, we start with a head start around that, uh, because we're 85% clean power across the country, virtually hundred percent here, but we have to recognize we need to add to that, uh, if we're going to grow. Ken, how, how can Vancouver lead the way with the innovation side of the, the clean economy? Yeah, I, I think we can lead by example. You know, um, yeah, I think we have an oversized impact if we think globally and we attract the companies. Um, but, you know, that that's for another day. Uh, at the local level, we can do our part by electrifying our streets, maybe entering into, uh, you know, public-private partnerships uh, where, where we can share the cost and we can, you know, bring these to market a lot faster. Um, you know, it, it, it really goes back to at the end of the day, if we can lead by example, um, you know, like once again, bring up the bike lanes, uh, build a 15 minute city, you know, obviously these things take time, but if we can, um, show the world that we, you know, we're embracing transit and we're building our, you know, our homes and our businesses around transit. So, you know, you can live, uh, work and play 90% of your life within a 15 minute walk through your front door. These are the things uh, that we can do. Um, but will Vancouver itself have a material impact on uh, reducing climate change outside of having our companies here? Um, you know, they're, you know, change the world? Probably not. That, that's not where the focus should be. It should be by leading by example. Because you can, you can literally shut down Vancouver and not have a single car here. It will make zero impact in terms of the temperature of the planet. So we have to lead by example and show the world what innovation looks like. And then that gets, you know, exported throughout the planet. Even through Canada as well. I think 
it's important to remember that we have, I think, 80% of our population is in urban communities across the country. And so the innovation that you've just described, um, you know, the electrification and the bike lanes, um, if we can continue to apply that to the, that 15-minute city to 80% of our population, then there's an opportunity there um, for, for cities, I guess. We could talk a little bit more about that, you know, what's happening in cities around the world in terms of contributing to that goal of the transition do you have yeah look i i think i think two quick comments one is um again recognizing what we have the head start that vancouver has is pretty impressive it doesn't mean you're satisfied with it but you want to use it and i just i'm i'm reminded uh, kelsey i hope you don't mind me mentioning this earlier conversation about the squamish nation's uh, development 6,000 bike stands in it, you know, 6,000 units, 6,000 bike stands, 600 uh, car uh, stations. Well, you, you can do that, and it's leadership to do that, but you do that in part because you've already done the work on the bike lanes, right? And 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 you have the concept of the 15-minute city. But I'll just, I'll say a quick thing, which I think it's, it's, it's going to strike maybe as a slightly odd uh, reference, but I think it's a useful example um, on cities. Uh, so if I carved out Canary Wharf, um, Canadian uh, innovation, and at least initially, um, the Canary Wharf in the UK. Um, so Canary Wharf has a master plan, which is incredibly detailed and is two years into it, net zero of 2030, uh, 100% waste recycling. Um, it's transforming to the 15-minute city. So it's all about residential as well as, I mean, obviously there's the financial core there, huge life sciences uh, development there, another big engine uh, that comes with it and an integrated plan. And what's happening, um, again, in the trend, um, is that that's getting self-reinforcing because the changing nature of work and the, you know, there is basically super prime real estate now in, um, uh, in, in commercial real estate. There is, is more than a bifurcation as people come back to offices, what they want in and around, uh, from a neighborhood, from a quality of the buildings, from the carbon footprint, uh, as well. All of that comes together, and if you have it, you're in a fantastic position. If you're just if you just slightly miss it, then you you, know, you get in this uh, probably uh, vicious cycle. I hate to say it, and you know I, again I'm not saying because I'm here, but I think you're pretty close to having it, and so that's why you for for a variety of reasons you keep pushing it. Seeing any additional thoughts on the capacity for communities and cities to, in addition to retrofitting homes and the work that you're already doing, is is there more that 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 in collaboration with the levers that we you want to pull all of them that we could be doing at the city and community level? Probably about wanting, I think everybody would probably agree, um, you want a resilient, livable city for the long term, right? Um, and so that also needs diversity. So there's diversity of people, of course, um, but it's also a diversity of, you know, whether it's the amenities, diversity of thought, of course, um, diversity just in industries, like all of that, right? So I think there is more to do there. And I do think there's huge opportunity on the innovation front. Again, you know, we were, I was speaking to some people earlier about some of the core areas we have here, whether you think about fuel cells and clean tech, and I started my career investing in fuel cells, there's some people here, and like tried a hydrogen car 20 years ago. And there is a huge amount of knowledge in this region to really lean in to a lot of that technology. I think there's also opportunity within the partnership realm, um, you know, whether it's, again, 
three Ps, you know, clearly with First Nations, there's a tremendous amount uh, more to do. Um, and I think those are all just really unique to the time and place that we are here in this region. I think there's a ton of opportunity there. A lot of optimism, I think, on that on that note, we can look to the future a little bit. And I'll, I'll ask you each of this to sort of wrap up, but to share, you know, something that really makes you hopeful about the year ahead. Mayor, Sim, start with you. What I'll, I, I, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but <laughs> Vancouver is open for business again. And it's going to be great. We're going to be waving the flag. The Vancouver, like Vancouver has an amazing brand that hasn't been sort of, uh, you know, haven't, hasn't been focused on uh, last little bit and things are changing here. And at City Hall, we'll do our part. The answer is how can we help you and your business uh, succeed in our city? Yeah, I mean, I think there's optimism because so many of these conversations used to be so niche. Um, and they were always viewed as discrete parts of a conversation, right? So you'd have maybe a financial conversation, you'd have a separate climate conversation, and you'd talk about diversity in a whole different group of people. And I do think that that's changed. Um, anyone I speak to, even from a regulatory lens, clearly within um, all levels of government, businesses, that's no longer the case. So it's not so much anymore about should we be thinking about these things? Should we be doing anything? Now it's more, now it's the hard stuff. Like, how do we do this together? How do we actually work together? And, and so I'm optimistic and we also need to see action. So we can't just keep talking about it. We need to actually act. I'm optimistic because <laughs> of my two uh, fellow panelists, uh, because it's, you know, it's all about turning anxiety into action as Christine just said, and having clear plans and objectives, measurable objectives and moving them. Um, and I'll just uh, uh, give one other one other uh, supplement to that to go global for a second, which is that um, I think people are going to be quite surprised, favor very favorably surprised by the UAE's COP uh, this year. They are it, it's run by a business person uh, who is very focused on real investment to get decarbonization to drive in the toughest industries those types of solutions. Um, and that's very welcome because sometimes or too often what happens with these things is the tough elements are kept out of the room. Uh, and there's almost a desire just to, you know, you know, some people would like, if we just divest, if we just don't talk about it, it'll go away. Well, it's not going to go. Away. We have an auto sector. We have a steel sector. We have a, you know, and these are, these were great industries and people built them up and uh, there needs to be change and there needs to be a focus on how they help change. And that's what they want to take on. Uh, the shipping sector, we're in Vancouver, the shipping, green shipping is going to be a big, big deal. Um, and it's going to be a big deal sooner. Um, and things, you know, like uh, Shell and others who are part of the solution for that um, uh, will, will, will be a part of it. So I'm optimistic because this anxiety into action, focus on plans, focus on actually getting things done. Thank you guys very much for that. It was a wonderful conversation.